This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here's a question. Do you have haters? Most of us probably know what we mean when we say somebody's hating on us. For those who don't know, this is a colloquial phrase for folks who may have something against us. We think maybe they don't uh, they don't agree with who we uh, what we think. They don't agree with what we do. Ultimately, we feel like they just don't agree with who we are. And so we therefore kind of levy this label on them as a hater. Folks who uh, sit on some level have some type of a disagreement with us, and we typically will then, in my opinion, inflate just how badly they must kind of hate us. We'll use phrases like, haters hate to see me living my best life, right? The idea is when I'm doing well, that makes people angry and it makes them hate how well I'm doing. Haters love to tear me down, right? Again, this idea that I position myself up here and people don't want to see me up here. So they look for ways to poke holes, therefore being a hater. Some people will even say, if you have haters, you must be doing something right. Think about that. If you have haters, you must be doing something right. The definition of hate, this kind of definition would lead us to believe things like, You ain't nobody unless you got a hater. In other words, there's this sense in which we can start to enlarge ourselves based on how many haters we have. In our time today, I want to challenge our ideas of what it means uh, to hate. I want to challenge our ideas of even what it means to be a hater. What does it mean to be the object of said hate? And also, what does it mean to be the purveyor of such hate. So we have to redefine what hate is. Here's why. Thinking about hate the way that I just described, this way of thinking leads people to seek validation. You can almost seek validation uh, by way of constantly acquiring and acknowledging your haters. I can start to feel better about myself, right? If I have lots of people hating me, I must be doing something right. I'm looking for a reason to to kind of encourage myself. And the way I can encourage myself to keep doing what I'm doing is to find the people that disagree with what I'm doing. We feel more significant if we can identify the ways that we're being hated on because we believe there's a direct proportion between hate and rightness. This idea of hating needs to be challenged. Not just because I'm challenging, but because Jesus challenges us. We see in this text today, Jesus challenges us to think more deeply about what hate truly is. He also challenges us to understand uh, the, the origin of that hate. And not just understand the origin of the hate, but the original object of the hate. And for the Christian, it's a hatred that precedes you. For the Christian, it's a hatred 
that actually has little to nothing to do with you. A great example of that we can see in just the way we understand grammar. If I were to say to you, uh, she's coming over to finish the conversation you two were having. If I just said that without any context, you'd have no idea what I'm talking about. The first question you would ask is, who is she? What conversation? What are you, who's coming over to see me? Why? Because the pronoun she means nothing to you if you don't understand what the antecedent is. Pronouns mean nothing without the antecedent. Hatred means nothing. If we think about what it means to be a Christian and we claim we're being hated or we claim we're being persecuted, Jesus reminds us the only way to ensure that you're not making yourself into some sort of artificial martyr is to ensure that Jesus is the antecedent of the hate and not just you and what you're doing or what you think. We have to make sure that we connect those two together. So what Jesus is going to show us in this text is that uh, ultimately for the Christian, true hatred for you is not really rooted in you. True hatred for you is rooted in a pre-existing condition that precedes you. Hatred for you is rarely about you. It's rooted in a hatred for Jesus. And not only Jesus, but, but, the, but the way that Jesus challenges authority. The way that Jesus challenges power. The way that Jesus challenges cultural, political, and religious authority. In other words, you don't primarily have Jesus. Jesus does. In many ways, we ain't that important. So let's take a look at this text as we go in. And as we go into this text, really think through the way that Jesus talks about hate. Think about how Jesus talks about the haters. Think about how Jesus talks about himself as the object of that hate. And then what it means for us to partake in that hatred with Christ. Let's read together John chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This idea of hatred, this idea of what it means to be hated, everyone thinks they understand. This is one of those passages, like so many, that we can begin to appropriate in order to be like our self-help scriptures. 
right? It's so dangerous when we primarily look to the scriptures to say, how can I get help out of this versus, and that's not bad, versus how do I know who God is in this? And how do I know who I am to God in this? Starting there first keeps us from making ourselves the point of the story. But when we start with this and go, I feel like I'm being hated on. Let me find passages that talk about how if I'm being hated on, it must be because I'm with Jesus. And so we'll do that. The problem is the moment I identify something that maybe has nothing to do with Jesus, but now I've married it to Jesus. Then if that begins to if people take umbrage with any of that, then all of a sudden I feel like I'm being persecuted. Then I feel like I don't have or I have a threat of not holding on to power. People want to feel important. We all want to feel important. So we become obsessed with making ourselves in some ways artificial martyrs. It seems like that being persecuted must mean it must be good because if I'm being persecuted, that must mean I'm doing something right. And hopefully we're thinking that that means I must be doing something that that reflects well of Jesus, reflects well on Jesus. And so this idea that that we want to be martyrs, we people want to do this even outside of Christianity, but is definitely the case amongst Christians, especially those who self-identify as evangelicals. In 2017, the Public Religion Research Institute uh, did a poll and found that white evangelical Protestants were the only religious group more likely to believe that Christians face discrimination compared to Muslims in this world. Now, almost all of the empirical data that we look at could definitively show that that is indeed not the case, especially here in America, when we are in a country where for any period of time or for some period of time, people who uh, identify as Muslim were banned. We've never had any kind of a ban like that on anyone who claims to believe in Jesus. It's just very simple to see. That's just not true. But people want to feel important. And the primary way to feel important is to feel like we're persecuted and to feel like we are martyrs. Some have deemed this the evangelical persecution complex, EPC for short, if you want. And this idea that people feel like there's this this obsession with I got to feel like I'm right. I got to feel like I have power in some weird way. Feeling like I'm persecuted gives me more access to power, gives me closer proximity to power. So I want to feel like that I'm persecuted. So I feel like I have the moral high ground to speak into certain issues. This evangelical persecution complex, it's real, it's damaging, but it also leaves people with very little credibility to communicate an authentic gospel message. So what that means is just because people might be giving pushback, just because people may be naysayers, just because some people might be side-eyers, they are not persecutors. Sometimes people might just disagree with us vehemently. Sometimes people may have complete issues with a position we may hold or something that we're doing or something that we are against. They may just flat out disagree. Disagreement is not persecution. A lot of times when we feel like people are hating on us, it's not because we're right. We're just really unlikable. There's nothing godly about being a jerk for Jesus. There's nothing loving about that. And there's nothing, uh, uh, there's nothing that says that it's persecution when people say, I don't like that about you. It's just not persecution 
at all. So when you look at the passage that, uh, that we started with, the first three verses, when Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. We've been talking for the last few weeks now about all the ways in which we are united with Christ. And so the ways in which we are loved, right? We're loved because the Son is loved. Because the Father loves the Son, then the ones who love the Son are loved by the Father. We talked about this nested nature of our relationship with Jesus, right? Our relationship to the Son becomes nested, so now we have relationship with the Father. Well, that's great. That means that a lot of the good things that we get from Jesus, right? The, the good things that Jesus has because of his relationship to the Father, we have. Jesus has perfect righteousness because he is the perfect image of God, right? And so because we're in him, we now receive the righteousness of God. We see that, 2 Corinthians 15. We have the righteousness of God, not because we did anything to attain it, not because we did anything to earn it, but because we place our trust in the one who has the righteousness. So because he has the righteousness, we trust in him, we believe in him, we have it. It's a nested thing, right? Well, in the same way, you can't have, you can't want all of the good things that Jesus brings without expecting some of the bad things that we have by being in him. If people hated Jesus, then they're going to hate those who are in him. You can't be in a house and the house get torn down and the occupants don't. So, so it's no question. It's not a shock at all. When Jesus tells them, when the world hates you, you have to understand it hated me before it hated you. This hatred that you feel for you, it's not about you. It was never about you. So if you're thinking about hatred and you think about it as if it's something directed just about you, if you think the hatred levied against you is rooted primarily because of who you are and your standards and the way that you think and who you uh, and, and the way that you function, if you think that's the primary way that people hate or the reason why people are hating, either the way that you're being hated has nothing to do with Jesus or you are rooted in Jesus and they're hating the fact that Jesus and the love of Jesus is on display. But I suspect that for many of us, it's more rooted in our own individual nature. It's more rooted in the things that we care about, the things that we hold to. And we're kind of cosplaying as Christians, but really we're just being ourselves. This idea of persecution, we have to really dig into. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, if the world hates you, who's the world here? Who, what is he talking about? Is he just talking about just any garden variety citizen of earth? And as you go along the way, people around the world are just going to hate you? Or is there something more specific that Jesus is getting at? This is where I think context is so crucial. What have we been seeing up to this point? We've been seeing Jesus constantly posing a challenge to the authority of the religious uh, folks in power, some of the governmental folks that are in power. We've seen Jesus be an affront to the cultural powerful forces. So really when Jesus is saying they, the world, the only people he could really be pointing to from what they've seen so far are those that are in authority, those that have power, those that have privilege. When you look throughout history and you look at what persecution looked like. Ba roughly a few decades after Jesus uh, is, is resurrected <clears throat> and then ascends, what we know is that contrary to popular belief, 
the Romans, uh, they didn't oppose belief in Jesus. It's really easy to just go, people hated other people simply because they believed in Jesus. That on the, honestly, when you dig deep, that's not the primary truth. Early on, when you were, if you were a Christian, you had the same freedom to practice your faith to a degree, just like any other person had to practice their faith to a degree. Why? Because Rome was a polytheistic nation. They actually prided themselves on allowing and having this plural form, this plural approach to religion, this plural approach to worship. So they did not oppose belief in Jesus. Rather, Romans, they did persecute, but here's who they persecuted. Anyone who refused to pledge loyalty to Roman authority. So to the degree that your faith would get in the way of pledging fealty and loyalty to the authorities there, that's the degree to which you would be persecuted. It's an oversimplistic approach to just say people hated them because of Jesus. It's, it's, it's to some degree, yes, but to a large degree, it's something deeper, right? Or maybe we should get to the point of, but why would Jesus have been offensive? Why would Jesus and belief in Jesus have been offensive? Because when people get to the place where they understand who Jesus is, understand the heart of Jesus and begin to try to embody that and live that out, there are things that the authorities will say we should be doing when we're going, no, can't do that because that's not the way we love people. Jesus has talked almost ad nauseum about what it means to love others, to love God and love others. So much so that he takes the greatest commandment and turns it into this platinum rule. Love God, love others. Now, love others the way I loved you. Jesus is ultimately known by who he loves, not by who he excludes. So when authorities at play begin to identify themselves by who they exclude and Christians begin to say, no, we're going to be known by who we love. Guess what happens? Persecution ensues. So what you saw back then, you saw a number of people who were uh, beginning to follow Jesus and not only following Jesus in the way they loved people, but yes, they would show who they worshiped and it was only one. And because they worship one God, they could not bow the knee to any others. So you would have the Romans who would uh, have you do these kind of ceremonial, kind of performative uh, ritual sacrifices to their Roman gods. They likely didn't even believe in a lot of them, but that was a part of the tradition that you were supposed to uh, be a part of if you were in Rome. We have traditions now, right? We have traditions now that if we see people not partaking in those traditions, we're ready to even wonder if they're Christians. Why? Because our citizenship seems to take precedent over our own Christianity. So if there are uh, certain traditions that we deem to be patriotic and people choose not to do it for any number of reasons, it doesn't even matter whether it's the right reason or the wrong reason. For us, it's an ultimate thing for them not to do it. Why? because we've elevated it to the level of worship. And when we see people not worshiping what we worship, even though we would never admit to worshiping it, you know how we know that we worship it? Because we get angry when other people don't worship the way we do. So somebody chooses, for whatever reason, not to stand for the national anthem. What are we prone to do? Come up with any number of reasons why, and then think about, we'll maybe compare ourselves and go, well, I do that. And that just, just, as a Christian in America, that's just something that we should do. Why? That in and of itself is just mere tradition. 
whether good or bad. We don't even have to pass a, a value judgment there. It's a, it's a tradition in this country, and we've deemed it patriotic, which I would argue isn't necessarily, but neither here nor there. But somebody is choosing not to do it, and we will look at them and do kind of what the Romans would do to the Christians. You're not bowing the knee to something we deem to be worshipful. You're not putting your hand over your heart in order to convey something that we deem to be solemn, sacred, and worshipful. You dare take a knee instead of stand, because standing is what we view to be the most sacred, the most solemn, the most worshipful. This is where Christians were being persecuted because they were saying, we live in Rome and we're going to love people well and be a good citizen here in Rome. But the degree to which you require me, in this case, it was even deeper, the, the degree to which you require me to pledge full loyalty to a false God, this false truth, this false idea I will not do it because my commitment to the truth is too strong. My commitment to who God is, is too strong. That's when they became persecuted. This is where persecution often looks like when other people say this authority has deemed this important and you say it's not nearly as important because of what I know uh, God to be, who I know God to be. That's when people are ready to persecute. This is what the Christians were. This was what they were being called to do in Rome is this equivalent of this oath of allegiance. That's what many historians tell us. So to be a part of these ritualistic ceremonial sacrifices, this is what it meant to show who you were allegiant to. And this is why they began to be persecuted. Now, this kind of persecution is real hatred. That's what it meant when we say Jesus had haters. This is what it meant. He didn't just have. Yes, we see people making comments about him, saying things about him, making jokes about him, uh, finding ways to mock him. Yes, those for sure. Haters in the sense that we would use. But this is a deeper type of hatred. This is real persecution. You're threatening my authority and I have to take you out because the authority that I have is far more important to me than the authority you assert, the authority you claim, the authority that you bring. So this persecution, this hatred of Jesus, and therefore the hatred of his followers is always rooted in authority, not just mere disagreements. It's not enough to just say, these folks disagree with me. These folks voted differently from me. These folks live differently from me. These folks love differently from me. These are all ways in which we begin, right, to start thinking, oh, no, if the people who love, live, vote, whatever, if they're different from me and they multiply in numbers, my proximity to power is going to be lower. And having a lower proximity to power makes me afraid it makes me get, I'm afraid of losing something. There's something I've been clenching, this power that I've had, there's influence that maybe we as a group have had, and I'm so afraid of losing it that I'm willing to do whatever I have to, to rest it back. And what do we begin to do? We can quickly and easily become the persecutor. Why? Because this is always rooted in authority, a challenge to authority, a challenge to power. Uh, we've seen people kind of make mention of some things that have been brought up uh, in 2016, where Christians seem to be clamoring, certain Christians, especially within kind of evangelical uh, circles, as, as people have defined them. And in those circles, people are saying, we, we want 
power. We feel like we're losing power and we need to find, no matter what it is, whether it's at the presidential level, at lower levels, we need candidates that can promise to either give or restore a sense of power that we believe we are entitled to. And so we see that there were politicians, even in 2016, saying, uh, we're going to give you power. We're going to make sure that Christians will have power again. This was something quoted directly. I'm going to make sure that Christians have power again. What happens when we believe that the primary way by which we, as Christians, get power is by getting proximity to certain people within political, uh, powerful positions? This is such a dangerous approach because what that means is we are looking for authority outside of Jesus. We are. Now, Jesus might be thrown in. We might be able to get authority and include Jesus, but we're really not looking for authority um, in Jesus. We're looking for authority outside of him. And once we get that, then we can choose to include him. And here's one thing we've got to understand. Authority outside of Jesus is an attempt to have authority over Jesus. Any authority that we try to find, any authority we try to go after or pursue, ultimately, if it's not in Jesus, and I don't mean Jesus as in this military authority I might be able to get, or this political authority I might be able to get, or even this spiritual authority I might be able to get. That's not what we're talking about. Ultimately, if we're not looking at Jesus as the, the ultimate exemplar, not just our savior, not, the, not just the one who, who reconciles us to a holy God, but as this perfect exemplar of what it means to love well, which means I will radically love the way Jesus does because that's the authority on how I love. Not the authority on who I get to exclude, not the authority on who I get to hate, but the authority on how and who I should be loving. When that is driving me, that's what it means for Jesus to be my authority. So if there are other authorities who are positing ways in which we should be living and, 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 and not loving certain people or not loving people within our community or not caring for those within our community, now we've got choices to make. How do I still love Jesus well and then actually convey this love in the way that I live in my community? And what if there are authorities that be that are completely not on that same page? This is what it means when we say authority outside of Jesus is authority over him, because there are some people that go, I disagree with the way those people are loving other people. I disagree with the way that those people are trying to advocate for other people. And so we've got to find a way to silence them. We've got to find a way to cut their legs out from under them. In many ways, those folks, whoever those folks are, maybe loving more like Jesus, and they're the ones actually being persecuted. And this is why we have to be careful that we don't make ourselves into artificial martyrs. We create these false kind of tack marks and how we, these tallies that we kind of judge ourselves by. And, and we've got this rubric by which we kind of measure how close am I to Jesus, but we use things that have nothing to do with loving people. And then those are the things that we use to measure ourselves. And then when people start to speak out and, and have disagreements with the way we're doing that, then we say we're being persecuted. I don't have my free voice to voice the things that I want to be able to, to, to say or to do the things that I want to be able to do or to live in these ways where I'm truly not really loving people well. But now they're saying that I should be loving people well and I don't like that. And I feel like that's an affront on my rights. We talked about this last week. 
What that means is that we start taking things that aren't necessarily rooted in who Jesus is, and we, and we make those things ultimate ways that we claim that we're good Christians. What do I mean by that? Well, if, if people are saying, hey, one of the best ways, we said this before, one of the best ways to be able to love people well, to care for people well, in the midst of a pandemic is to wear masks. Just put on a mask. Tons of scientific experts have made doctors, not just any doctor, epidemiologists, virologists, immunologists, please don't send us clips of, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, what, what do you call them? Um, what are they, they call them snake oil salesmen, but they're not. The people that work on your back, chiropractors. They're great. Love chiropractors. They're wonderful. Don't send me a clip of a chiropractor telling me about what we should do about uh, this pandemic. They don't study uh, immunology. They don't study virology. They don't study epidemiology. So why would we listen to that? And yet, when people say, hey, the majority of this community who, have, who has complete expertise in this area are saying this is the primary way, not only that you protect yourself, but you, you will protect your neighbor. And what are some, especially Christians, inclined to say? I feel like my rights are being infringed. I feel like that my voice as a Christian is not being heard. I shouldn't have to be told that I have to put a mask on. Because somehow we thought that like our American rights is like was was uh, that that was what Jesus shed his blood for for some reason. But yes, I feel like that's being taken from me. It's being robbed from me and I'm being persecuted and don't even get started on how we feel when it's time for the governments to say, hey, by the way, meeting as a church could be very dangerous because we will not slow the spread if we meet in close numbers the way we have before. Further, even if we meet in even with limited numbers, there's still a chance of spread. And it's probably best to just avoid that until X, Y and Z occurs. When those types of things come down, what are we prone to do? Well, a lot of us are going now my religious right to assemble, my, my right to assemble as, in my faith is being attacked. We're being persecuted. Somebody help us. We just want any reason to be a martyr. We just want any reason to feel like we're being persecuted. We're not being persecuted for who we're loving, that's for sure. Most of the time, we feel like we're being persecuted because we think we're not getting something we're supposed to have. You see, ultimately, every time we look throughout history, Christians are being persecuted because of the ways they're loving people who don't have. So, this idea of artificial martyrdom, this is why I'm harping on, harping on it so hard. Because artificial martyrdom keeps you from doing the necessary heart work. Artificial martyrdom will actually make you feel like you're right when you're wrong. Artificial martyrdom will make you feel like you're being persecuted because of Jesus when you indeed may be persecuting Jesus yourself. This is what it looks like when we think that our goal is to have close proximity to power so we can protect the things that we think are most important. And here's what's most interesting. Anytime when you really want to look at the way Christians, real Christians, Christians who have followed the way of Jesus throughout history, even if they were in small numbers, those that would advocate for those who are suffering from injustice, anytime there is injustice, there are people asserting their authority over Christ's. So if you look throughout the history of this country, anytime there have been injustice, grave injustices to various people groups in this country, at the hands or at the ballot of those who claim to love Jesus, those things happen 
because on some level, people were asserting their authority over the authority of Jesus. Listen to this quote. I have a couple of quotes here from James Baldwin, one of uh, the most amazing writers in the 50s and 60s and 70s. This is the last major essay that he wrote uh, back in 1987. It's called To Crush the Serpent. And listen to this excerpt. Not one of the present day white fundamental, uh, fundamentalist preachers would have had the humility, the courage, the sheer presence of mind to have said to the mob surrounding the woman taken in adultery, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. Or the depth of perception that informs, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. You know, when you think about what Jesus says here uh, to, uh, throughout the scriptures, as he uh, has laid out, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And he starts to lay out, like if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. In other words, if you had thought the way that the authorities think, if you had gone in line with the way that the authorities think, they would have loved you. Why? Because you're not challenging their authority. When Jesus said he was without sin, cast the first stone, he is now challenging their authority to do what? to not have to love radically this woman that they were preparing to kill. And then what does Jesus say? Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. What is he really saying here? He's saying, if I'm going to be persecuted, you ought not think you'll be exempt from it. But ensure that we're being persecuted for Jesus and not just our own sake. I love the way that he walks through uh, the, the them, who he's talking about here, these powerful figures. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. What is he saying here? Jesus has shown incredible radical love. He's healed people. He's brought people back from the dead. He's done incredible miracles. He has shown all those things are ways that Jesus shows love to other people. He has displayed radical love to other people, people that oftentimes can be overlooked. He's shown crazy love, radical love. And in the, in the midst of showing that love has challenged the authorities of these religious leaders and these political leaders. So he says, if I had never shown them these things, if I had never displayed all of this type of love, this, 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 if I have not exemplified love in this way, then maybe they wouldn't be at fault in the same way, right? Because they're hating me. They're hating me after seeing me do these crazy radical forms of loving people. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. Again, what does he mean? They... They wouldn't be guilty of sin because they would just have no clue why they would have to be angry for another reason. Now they have seen and hated me, both me and my father. Then he says this, but this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. I think it's interesting. He just gave, you see the reasons they hated him, right? But what Jesus is saying is that hatred of me because of love, my love, my radical love is never a reason to hate. Jesus is saying radical love is really radical advocacy, right? Radical love equals radical advocacy. How do I continue to advocate for people who are not loved well, who are not advocated for well? And so if I'm going to radically love people and they're going to hate me for that, that's not an acceptable reason. So they indeed are hating me for no real reason. Here another quote. 
from James Baldwin. Jesus and his disciples were distrusted by the state, largely because they respected the poor and shared everything. The fundamentalists of the present hour would appear not to know that the poor exist. Y'all, we don't start with haters. Jesus does. The degree to which we love radically like Jesus did means we will get hatred similar to what Jesus did. It's never our job to, to gain proximity to power in order to validate Jesus. It's never our job to, to even look to power in order to make Jesus more believable, to make Jesus more heard. That's not our job. It is our job to steward and privilege power in order to radically love like Jesus. Listen to this final historic example. If you know anything about church history, you'll, you'll read at some point in time about uh, a bishop named Ambrose. Some people refer to him as Saint Ambrose. This was a man who was willing to rebuke the Roman emperor at the time. This Roman emperor, his name was Theodosius, and he was a very heinous, evil leader. He had massacred tons of civilians as punishment for the murder of one of his generals. Here's what Ambrose did. Ambrose refused to allow the church at the time to become a political prop, even though he was uh, concerned that, that doing so might even endanger him. But he spoke the truth to power. He told the emperor, no, we will not do this, even though you're the leader and even though our relative safety is, is tied heavily to, your, to our good friendship with you and our good name, to some degree, some sense of, of being uh, uh, amicable with one another. He spoke out. He spoke truth to power. And eventually, the Roman emperor actually sought uh, uh, and he actually apologized. He actually showed some degree of penitence uh, as a result of this. And what we find later is that uh, Ambrose would end up going to teach and be a part of the conversion of one of the greatest church fathers we have, Augustine. But he had no, for him, there was no, the temptation to just go along with the powerful leaders and, and allow that to almost in many ways co-sign the damage and the hurt and the harm that's caused to other people in the community. The church wouldn't allow it. He wouldn't allow it. What does this teach us? Look, proximity to power, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when the desire for power infects our heart and perverts the mission of God, our alleged faith becomes politically weaponized. Ultimately, the Jesus you persecute will show up in your politics and as the enemy of your political idols. So what does it really mean? to have haters as a Christian. It's gotta be something deeper than just kind of the shallow things that we'll bring up. They're hating me because of the job that I got. They're hating me because I got married and they didn't. They're hating me because I have clothes and they don't. They're hating me because I have money and they don't. I got into that college and they didn't. It's gotta be something deeper than that. It's gotta be something more than that. Real hatred occurs because of the way we love people not because of the way we exclude. So on some level, we need to exhaust ourselves. Listen, this does not mean we need to be aspiring to be persecuted. Don't look to just put yourself in a position to be persecuted so that you can say, yay, I'm persecuted, check me out. But the real goal is, Lord, let me exhaust myself 
just loving people. Let me exhaust myself just advocating for people. Let me do that to the point where if it interrupts and disrupts authority, if it makes people think twice about where or from whom they get their authority, and if it means that it brings persecution my way, praise God for that. Because ultimately, it's not about me. It's not about who hates me. It's about who loves me and who hates that. That's where our heart is. That's where our our, our truth should be. That's where real hatred, that's how hatred should look for us. So let's just be a people that says, listen, I want to be a person that if I'm hated, I'm hated because of the way that I love. Not because of what I do or because of who I am or what I'm capable of, but truly what Jesus is capable of, what he's done, what he's doing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, redefining over and over again all the, all the ways in which we seek to exalt ourselves. You define it as sin. You show us that that is just a, a, another desire to exalt ourselves above each other and above you. Father, I pray that you will root out this, this spirit of, of uh, this, this artificial martyrdom that we seem to seek out in so many different ways. God, I pray that you would not make us a part of this kind of church persecution complex, whether evangelical or otherwise. God, I pray that we would seek to truly be known by who we love and not who we exclude and who we hate. And Lord, if that brings persecution, then we say, bring it. Because now it's not even about us anymore. It's totally about you. So God, make us a people that says it is totally about you your heart, your vision, your image, and your kingdom, and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. And now let's receive the benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.